I want us to watch about a 24, 25 minute video. And then immediately upon that, I've got about 30 minutes myself. Okay? And then uh, after the video, I'll have a study guide for you. What we're talking about tonight is Revelation. Now, Revelation falls under two broad categories. Do you know what those two broad categories are? General and special. Okay? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, general and special uh, revelation, okay? So uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then let's uh, get started. Father, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds tonight to look deeply into your word, Lord, to be challenged to grow in our faith that we might be equipped to be better witnesses. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit tonight to direct our steps and to direct our study. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Can everybody see the video okay? Today, as we now begin the actual study of the whole scope of systematic theology, having done uh, some introductory work in our first two sessions, I want to begin with the subject of revelation. Because as I've said, Christianity is not based upon someone's speculative philosophy, but it stands or falls as a revealed faith. And the fundamental assertion of the Christian faith is that the truth that we embrace as Christians is truth that has come to us from God himself. God who is hidden from our vision. We can't see him with our eyes. Nevertheless, he has removed the veil that hides himself from us by means of revelation. A revelation is a making plain or clear or unfolding of that which is hidden. Now, in the study of theology, we make some distinctions about revelation, about different kinds of revelation, and one of the most important distinctions we make is the distinction between what is called general revelation and what is called special revelation. Now, today I want to concentrate on the first one of these. But the Scriptures tell us that God is the fountainhead or the source of all truth. And if you can think of this in terms of an analogy or a metaphor of the headwaters or the source of a river that maybe is a small spring, and yet out of that spring flows a mighty river. Now, the idea here is with God's being the source, the spring, or the what they call in, in, in the foreign language, the oorsprung, the original spring of all truth, the idea that comes from that is that not only is religious truth dependent upon God's work of revelation, but that all truth is dependent upon divine revelation. Now, that may seem as a, an astonishing idea to you, but it was an idea that was taught very strongly, for example, by St. Augustine and then later by St. Thomas Aquinas. 
And the idea was this, that we as creatures couldn't know anything about anything unless God made knowledge itself possible for us. And the uh, illustration that St. Augustine used was this. He said, here we are equipped with eyes and a brain and optic nerves and all of the physical equipment that is necessary for vision, for seeing. And we go to the eye doctor and he examines us and says, you're not blind. In fact, you have 20-20 vision. But if we are placed in a room where there are all sorts of beautiful objects and we have 20-20 vision, an acute visual perceptive ability, and you turn out the lights and the room is immersed into total darkness, how much of the beauty will you see of those things that are in the room? You won't see anything. Because in and of ourselves, though we have the necessary equipment to see things out there, unless those things are set in the light, even our most acute senses are inadequate to perceive them. And Augustine said, just as you need light physically to be able to see anything in this world, so the light of divine revelation is necessary for us to know any truth whatsoever. So for Augustine, and Aquinas then quoted Augustine verbatim on this very point, saying that all truth and all knowledge in the final analysis rests upon God as the source of truth, and as the one who makes it possible for us to know anything at all. So at this point, when we say that we trust in revelation for the content of our religious faith, and somebody who coming from the, the physical sciences makes fun of that and say, well, you people appeal to some kind of supernatural revelation where we don't need that. We just go to our laboratories and we discern truth empirically. What we would say to them is that you can't learn anything in a test tube were it not for the creators revealing to you and giving you the capacity to learn what you learn through a study of nature. Now, this brings us to these two sources of revelation, or two kinds of revelation. When we talk about general revelation, this refers to that unveiling that God gives of himself that is general in two ways. The term general has two uh, directions to it. First of all, it's called general revelation because it is knowledge that is given to everybody. Everybody in the world has an availability of divine revelation. God does not simply reveal himself to specific individuals or mystics or isolated spiritual people, but his self-revelation goes to every human being, to the whole world. The whole world is his audience. The Bible says, for example, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. So anyone who has eyes and can see walks in that theater and is a spectator 
of the glory of God that is manifested through the stars and the moon and the sun and, and all of nature, which is a grand theater. You say, but what if you're blind? That knowledge doesn't proceed to everybody. Well, also the Bible speaks about God's knowledge that he plants in your souls, that he gives you a conscience, and by nature he reveals inwardly to you, he gives you a sense of right and wrong, which comes from him. So even if you're blind and can't see the physical universe, you still have that interior knowledge of God that he has planted within your soul. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But for now, let's just say this, that the word general means that everyone is in the audience. Every human being is exposed to God's revelation, the general revelation. Now, again, we're not talking about the Bible here because there are millions and millions of people who have never seen a Bible, never read a Bible, never heard anybody preach from the Bible. But they have lived in the theater of nature where God manifests himself to people. Now, the second reason why it's called general is that the content of general revelation is of a general sort. That is, it doesn't give us a detailed account of the atonement of Christ or of the resurrection of Christ. You can't study a sunset and see the heavens declaring for us God's plan of salvation. You have to go to the Bible for that. That has specific information that you can't gain from a study of nature. But it's not that nature reveals nothing about God, but the content is that God is, His eternal power and deity is made manifest through the created order. Now, we'll look at that in a little bit more detail in a few moments, but first, let's make another distinction. We understand now the difference between general and special revelation. General revelation is that revelation that God gives to everybody, and it's of a general sort gives us a general knowledge of God. It's different from the Bible. The Bible is special revelation, and only those who have access to it get it, and it gives us much more detailed information about the work and the plans of God that you would get from general revelation. Now, sometimes general revelation is called natural revelation, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing, and I have to ask you to be careful here. If we use the term natural revelation, what is usually meant in the lingo of theology, in the parlance of the discipline, is that the term natural revelation is a synonym for general revelation, because general revelation is that revelation that God gives to us in and through nature. And so we can call it general revelation, or we can call it natural revelation. Is that easy? That's clear? Okay. Now, here's where it gets tough, and here's where it gets confusing. There's another category that we're interested in here, and it's called natural theology. Now, sometimes people confuse the term natural revelation and the term natural theology. They do not refer to the same thing. I'm going to draw a picture up here on my little blackboard to try to display 
the difference between natural revelation and natural theology. And we'll, we'll, we'll take advantage of my vast artistic skill here at this point, where we're going to draw a picture of a human being. Isn't that clever? This is a person. We'll make him a happy person. We'll give him a smiley face, okay? Now, this person is down here in this world, and up here is God. And in between God and this person is the world, or the universe, or what we'll call nature. Now, when we talk about general revelation, we're not simply saying that God gives us a planet called Earth and then says, okay, you go back and use the naked power of your reason to figure out who I am on the basis of this clue I left here of giving you a created world. Now, obviously, you can do that with a painting. You study a painting carefully, and you see the brush strokes, you see the kind of pigment that is used, you see the style that is in them, and you can do some detective work and come to the conclusion, wow, this painting must have been painted by Van Gogh or from uh, uh, Rembrandt or whoever, because you know something previously about Rembrandt or about uh, these other painters. And it's not that God just paints the painting and then just allows you to be the detective. The idea of revelation is more than that. It is that this is a medium through which God actively reveals himself to this person. That nature is not independent of God, but God communicates himself through the medium of the world. He communicates himself through the glory and majesty of the heavens and the stars and all of that. Now, this revelation that comes through nature is what we call natural revelation. And the revelation is something that God does. And the term natural revelation then simply stated refers to the work or action by which God reveals himself in and through nature. So the revelation is something God does. Now the question is, what happens to that revelation? Here I am down here. Who I am the target of that revelation. The question is, does that revelation that God gives ever get into my head? Does it ever give me knowledge of any kind? That's the question. Now, when we talk about natural theology, the distinction between natural theology and natural revelation is natural revelation is something God does, and natural theology is the result of what God does. Theology is the knowledge of God. And we're not talking about God's knowledge of himself here. We're talking about our knowledge of God. The question is, when God reveals himself to all of us, does that yield any knowledge of us in our minds 
any knowledge to us about God. Or to put it in another term. Can I learn anything about God from nature? Now, there's a huge controversy about this uh, that's been going on for quite some time now in the field of theology. Uh, there have been vigorous opponents to the idea of man's having any ability to know anything about God apart from salvation. Paul says in Corinthians that the natural man does not know God. And it would seem at that point that the apostle is precluding the possibility of anybody getting any knowledge of God by means of nature. Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates him, opens his eyes, and so on. However, in Romans chapter 1, which is the classic location for the doctrine of general revelation and of natural theology, the apostle says something else. And we'll look at that in a minute. But the apostle there says that we do have a knowledge of God. Now, before I look at the text, I want to, see, to see if you feel the problem. In Romans 1, he says we do know God by nature. In Romans 2, he says we do, or in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says we don't. Now, remember, the atomist would come at that and say, well, Paul believed one thing when he wrote Romans, something different when he wrote Corinthians, changed his mind. Another person would look at that and say, well, here's a clear example of a contradiction in the Bible where the apostle says in Romans 1 that people know God by nature, and in 1 Corinthians, they don't. So the Bible speaks the fourth tongue. Well, not so fast. The verb to know in the Greek and in the Hebrew is used in more than one way. There is that knowledge that we would call cognitive knowledge, intellectual awareness of, and then there is that personal, intimate knowledge that is a different kind of knowledge. For example, the Bible speaks of the Old Testament patriarchs of Adam and, and, and of Abraham and so on, and when it talks about their bearing children, It'll say, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Now, what does that suggest? That Adam and Eve meet in the garden, and he says, uh, Madam, I'm Adam. And as soon as they're acquainted, and he has an intellectual awareness of this woman, she's suddenly pregnant? Not at all. When the Bible uses the verb to know there, it's using that verb to describe the most intimate possible human relationship between a man and a woman. And when Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he's talking about a spiritual discernment of the things of God. And he is saying that in our fallen condition, we don't have that kind of spiritual knowledge of God. But that's a knowledge that goes beyond mere awareness, mere intellectual cognition. And if we look now at Romans 1, Paul says in Romans 1, he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is concerned here to show why it's necessary for us to be saved. And he's bringing the whole world before the tribunal of God. And he's trying to demonstrate that everybody needs the gospel because everybody's judged guilty, not for rejecting Jesus, who they've never heard of in their lives in many cases, 
but for the universal rejection of God the Father who has manifested himself plainly and clearly to every human being, and it is our nature as sinners to do what? To hold that truth in unrighteousness. Various translations here. To repress it, to hinder it, to suppress it, to stifle it. And so he's, Paul's saying God is angry for what human beings do with his revelation. Well, let's go on. He goes on and says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now, he uses the word that in Latin is manifestum. In the Greek, it's phoneros. And the idea here is that God has not planted these esoteric clues under rocks and in caves and at the top of the Himalayas where you need some guru to explain to you that God exists, but that this revelation that he gives of himself is manifestum. It's clear. And he makes it clear, so you can't say if the student didn't learn, the teacher didn't teach, because God teaches us about his own character clearly and plainly. To, to what avail? Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Oof, that sounds like a self-contradictory statement. How can somebody see what is invisible? The word invisible means can't be seen. And yet Paul here is saying that the invisible things of God are seen. And not only are they seen, but they're seen how? Clearly. Well, but not directly. We don't see the invisible God. What we see is what? The visible world that carries to us the revelation of God. Because God is revealing his unseen character through the things that can be seen. Listen to what Paul says. For God has shown that for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And what excuse do you suppose the apostle has in view here? The excuse that everyone who refuses to come to God relies upon. He says, I'm an agnostic. I don't know if God exists. We can't know for sure. God hasn't made it clear. There's not a good case for the existence of God. And the sinner at the judgment is going to say, if I would have only known you were there, God, I would have been your most devout follower. That's the excuse that God takes away. That's what Paul is saying here. God has so clearly manifested himself through nature and that that revelation is clearly perceived so that leaves man without an excuse. Now, again, because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark. You see what Paul is saying here? He uses the participial form of the verb to know, and he says that they did know him. So in Romans 1, he says, we know him in one sense. In 1 Corinthians, 
We don't know him in a different sense. But we know this much. His eternal power and deity is made clear to the whole world. And so there is not only a general revelation or a natural revelation, but there is also a natural theology. That natural theology gets all distorted and defected and all the rest. But it does not erase the knowledge of God that God gives to us through nature. Okay. Find Romans 1 in your Bibles. He mentioned that several times. And then if I could uh, get a couple of ushers. Everybody just needs one of these. Earl, you want to get that side? Okay. Ed, you want to you want to help them pass those out? Okay. I'll give just a second for these guys to. Uh, they have the rest of them. There should be plenty. Everybody got one? No? Not yet? Okay. Would have had those ready. I was fighting the copier. (laughs) Fighting copiers and computers. No. Uh, is that enough? If, if there's not, if we need a few more, maybe a husband and wife will share. Got them? Does everybody have one? Okay. Let's uh, keep your hand up if you're still waiting on one. And look at uh, Romans chapter 1. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1. And pick up reading with me in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, underscore this next phrase, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Wow. Uh, I've given you a study guide there to uh, just follow along. You don't really have to uh, fill in the blanks tonight. I, I wanted to give you most of the answers. I, I've, uh, I'm going to fill in the gaps. But I want you to notice what's on the screen first of all tonight. Because we are finite and God is infinite, if man is to know God... God must take the initiative in revealing himself. That's true, isn't it? Even in general revelation. Yes, as we'll see. Uh, one of the greatest confessions of all time, most, most confessions, including Baptist confessions since this time, have been built off of the Westminster uh, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence uh, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. So what we're going to see tonight is that while general revelation tells us there is a God... General revelation doesn't tell us how to be saved. What do we need for that knowledge? Special revelation. And then we're going to talk later on tonight about what uh, special revelation is. Uh, in church history and theology, you find a lot of Latin phrases because of the church fathers, uh, obviously their language. Uh, a very common one you'll find, I've given it to you there, finitum, non capex, infiniti. Uh, the finite cannot grasp or contain the infinite. You'll be tested on that phrase next week. Uh, general revelation, often called natural revelation, is general in two ways. First of all, it is general in that... It is, it is offered or it is revealed to all men. What's Romans 19 say? Oh, excuse me. Uh, Psalm 19. Thank you. I'm thinking of Romans 1. Psalm 19. What's Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. What declares the glory of God? The heavens do. What's Romans 1 talk about? The creation. The creation gives witness to God. It's also general in the sense that uh, it's only intended to reveal a limited amount of understanding. A limited amount of understanding. Uh, special revelation, on the other hand, was revelation given to particular persons at a particular time. And again, tells us how to be saved. But general revelation was only intended to reveal a limited amount of understanding. Again, it just tells us 
uh, like Romans 1 says, his invisible attributes. His existence and his invisible attributes. That's what general revelation lets us know. In general revelation, God reveals himself through nature, through history, and through the inner conscience of man. Now, what is the result of that? What's the result of this right here? Man has no excuse, right? Man's without excuse. Man can't say, but God, I didn't know that you were there. Because God's fingerprints are all over the created order. God has also spoken in general revelation through history. Now, let me give you just an example of this. People will speak of God's preservation of the nation of Israel as an example. Here's a nation that from a human standpoint of view should have been wiped out many times over. And yet, it's continued to exist. So God's preservation of people. There's also the inner sense of deity in every person. Romans 2 talks about this. This inner sense. Now, what do you think our missionaries find out about this? This inner sense. Any guesses? The worship of something? How so? Exactly. Wherever they go, wherever our missionaries go in the world to take the gospel, they find people there, generally speaking, worshiping something. Now, not worshiping the true God, but they're worshiping idols, worshiping man-made idols. Why? Because men know instinctively inside that there is a God. Because God's put it on our heart. Again, Romans 2. This internal sense of deity in in every person. Now, he indicated tonight uh, that we don't need to confuse general revelation with natural theology. Natural revelation or general revelation is what God does. Revealing himself in nature, history, the human conscience. That's what God does. Natural theology is what we do with that. It's the conclusions and theology that we develop from general revelation. Is that clear? Is that distinction clear? General revelation, what God does... In testifying to himself, in creation, history, conscience, natural theology or general theology is what man does with that to process that and and communicate that. Well, what's the content of general revelation? First of all, would be God's glory. Psalm 19.1, God's glory. Psalm 19.1 also testifies to God's power 
uh, his power to work in creating the universe. Romans 1 testifies to God's supremacy and his divine nature. In Acts 14, 17, his providential control of nature. In, in Matthew 5:45, his goodness. In Acts 17, 29, his intelligence. And in Acts 17, 28, his living existence. Now, as you see up on the screen now, while, and I've made this point already, but while general revelation is sufficient to condemn, it's not sufficient to save. Because again, for that, we need special revelation. And what would that revelation be? What, what generally falls under the category of special revelation? Scripture. Scripture. So the written word, and, and what's the other thing? Christ. Christ, the living word. The written word and the living word is special revelation. Are we clear on those categories? Yes? No? General revelation? God's, God's glory and creation and history and in the inner part of man, general revelation, tells us there, that there is a God there, doesn't tell us how to be saved, special revelation, His written word and His living word, and that's what we need in order to know how to be saved. We clear on that? Right. Sure. The, the Indians that had their different spirits and all that same way today. When, when our missionaries go into remote parts of Africa or wherever in the world, New Guinea or, you know, they'll find people, they'll find tribes of people that, that have altars and they, they've, they've created little things of worship, even though they don't know. Uh, what they're worshiping. Okay. Uh, scripture points out again that God is there and He can be known because He's made it to where He can be known. He's made it possible. Now, you know, in philosophy, uh, philosophers talk about epistemology. What's epistemology have to do with? Knowledge. What can we know? What can we know? The, the nature and scope of knowledge. Now, during the, during the period of the Enlightenment... Skepticism was voiced as to what could be known about God. Have you ever heard of the philosopher Immanuel Kant? Sure, you've heard of Immanuel Kant, right? No? Yes? One of the, one of the best known philosophers. Lived from 1724 to 1804. He said, now... now by the way, folks, we don't agree with what he said. But anyway, he said that if God exists, he cannot be known. If God exists, he cannot be known. Kind of a, a philosophy of agnosticism. 
Kant insisted that the world of ideas apart from sensory perception may exist, but it is unknowable to human beings. The world of ideas apart from sensory perception may exist, but it is unknowable to human beings. The Bible fervently disagrees with that. Because the Bible points out that God reveals himself. God made human beings in his image, which implies knowledge and relationship. Uh, Even as there's knowledge and relationship within the Trinity. There's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us that that Jesus came to exegete the Father to us, to show us the Father. There's the inspiration of Scripture and there's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So certainly the Bible would disagree with Immanuel Kant and every other agnostic. Now, some of the words that the Bible uses for revelation, uh, common, some of them common, you've heard of them, ap- ap- apocalypse. Apocalypse means what? An unveiling. What, what in your Bible is, is titled that? Revelation. revelation. The apocalypse. Okay? That's one of the words in the Bible for revelation. Epiphany, you've heard the word epiphany, right? Appearance. And then phonorosis, an open manifestation. All of those are words in the Bible that have to do with God making himself known to humanity. Now folks, God's grace is seen in this if you'll think about it. Here we are, we're sinners, we've sinned, we've come short of the glory of God, and yet despite this, God makes himself known so that you and I can be reconciled to him. That's grace. And and that's the whole storyline of redemption in the Bible, is it not? Sure it is. Now, again, I've mentioned too, there's the revelation in Romans that Romans 2 speaks of, the conscience. The, the, Paul talks there about the Gentiles doing what's required of them even though they don't have the law. He sets up a contrast there. The, the, the Jews who had the law not doing the law, and yet here's some Gentiles who don't have the law yet doing what the law demands. How can that be? Because of the conscience. Now, here's another word for you. Perspicuity. That's another big word that's used in in theology. Perspicuity of general revelation. What does that mean? Refers to clarity. God, Romans 1.20 says that God is clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. Again, no man can come along and say, but God, I'm sorry, I had no idea that you were there. Now, what's the result? 
I've given you some of these phrases just again, just so you'll know. So if, if you're ever in a class or anything that talks about them, you'll, you'll, you'll understand these three. There's three more Latin phrases uh, that, that communicate the result of general revelation. Notitia Dei in Sita, the implanted knowledge of God. It's there because God put it there. The census deitatus, an awareness of deity. And the semen religionis, the seed of religion. This is the result of general revelation. Now, what do men do? What do men do with general revelation according to Romans 1? Obviously, some embrace it. And God gives more truth. God gives a truth leading to a knowledge of His Son, Jesus. But what does the majority of mankind do with general revelation? Suppresses it. Holds it down, taps it down, resists it, perverts it in idolatry. Just, just go through Romans chapter 1 and, and circle some of those verbs of what Paul says that men do with that knowledge. But yet, even though men try to tap it down and rebel against it and resist it and ignore it, guess what? What does Paul say? Men are what? Without excuse. Men are without excuse. So, think with me a moment. First of all, let me, let me preface this by saying we, we know that God will do the right thing. God can only do the right thing because he's a just God. But what about the person in the, what about the pagan in the world who has no knowledge of Christ? What would the Bible say on the day of judgment? They are without excuse. You say, well, how can that be? Because the Bible points out, and we have consistent examples of it in the Scripture in the New Testament, whether we're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius or other examples, when men respond to the amount of light that they have, what's God do? God gives more light. And He gives more light. And he sends him a missionary to tell him about Jesus. So, what about the person who never gets a missionary? You say, how can somebody be judged if they never got a missionary to tell them about Jesus? Because if they got, never got a missionary to tell them about Jesus, you know what that testifies of? That testifies of the fact that they were not even accountable for the amount of light they had been given. Because had they been accountable for the amount of light they'd been given, God would have given more light. The fact that they didn't get more light, they weren't even accountable to what they got. They're without excuse. That's your answer to tell people, what about the pagans who have never heard? Will they go to hell? Yes. Because... 
they show, they reveal that they did not even respond to the amount of light they had been given. Now folks, it's important to understand the relationship of general revelation to special revelation. They do not teach a different God. They do not teach a different God. They are in perfect agreement. General revelation, special revelation are in perfect agreement. And again, the shortcoming with the limitation or the shortcoming with general revelation is not in what it tells us, but in what it does not tell us. Okay? Now, as you can imagine, general revelation is often used in apologetics. General revelation, not just special revelation, general revelation is often used in apologetics. Now, some of these arguments don't do a great deal for me. Uh, I like what, what Derek Thomas says about the first one. He said, it leaves him cold. It doesn't do much for him. Kind of leaves me the same way. Nonetheless, it does speak to some, some people. There's the ontological argument. The ontological argument was put forth by a guy by the name of Anselm. And, and basically says that which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist in the understanding alone. That which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist in the understanding alone. The, the, the greatest you can think of must be, has to be, there has to be a God. The greatest you can think of. Then there's the cosmological argument. And, and this is an argument that is deduced from, just, from, from philosophers and theologians looking at the universe around them. And just what, what the universe testifies to. That they point out that the universe around us is an effect that demands a cause. It's an effect that demands a cause. Cosmological argument. Then there's the teleological argument. What's the teleological argument? The argument of what? Design. Where you see design, what do you, what do you find where you find design? You find a designer. Have you ever known a bomb to go off? You put some, put some nails in a bag and some screws in a bag and some little different parts in a bag and set off a bomb and then poof, what results is a Timex watch. <laughs> of course not. All the design and all the order in the universe testifies to a creator, to a designer. 
Some will point to the complexities of the human body and the eye and things like that and how everything has to work together. And some philosophers will even get into this thing, uh, irreducible complexity in a cell. You know, the evolutionists would say that you have all these parts in a cell that, that they develop over time and, and irreduce, they found out in some cells you know there'll be little fans and rotors and drive shafts and this and that and the cell cannot exist without all of those parts functioning together in unison and harmony how can that be? it's a testimony to God the teleological argument, David you had your hand up Hmm? Okay, I answered it. Okay. Uh, one of the more classic arguments here would be William Paley's uh, natural theology in 1802 that included the illustration of the watchmaker. Uh, so the ontological argument, the that there can be none greater that you could think of. Uh, cosmological argument, teleological argument, the historical argument. The historical ar argument is that men have always possessed a sense of God. How can you explain this? Again, we've already talked about this. Missionaries, when missionaries go around the world, different men in different cultures. So that's the historical argument. How do you explain that human beings across the planet, over time, they all seem to have a sense of the divine? There must be a reality behind that sense. And then there's the moral argument. The moral argument that man has a sense of right and wrong. So the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the historical argument, the moral argument. All of those things are arguments that philosophers have, have used as a result of general revelation. You with me? Philosophers have used these, come up with these arguments and use them... From general revelation. Folks, we're not even to special revelation yet. Special revelation, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ. But all of these are arguments that Christian philosophers have put forth from general revelation alone. Some of you are looking at me blankly tonight. Do you, do, you, do, you under, do you understand general revelation? Yes. Right? Yes, it's not what I'm talking about, it's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. That just in general revelation alone, in, in the created order, God has revealed enough about his existence to render men 
without excuse. We're not even to Genesis 1-1 and following yet about God's Word. David? Okay. Correct. What, and that's what Paul's talking about in, in verse 18 and following, that men tap down, they suppress that truth of what God's revealed. Now, again, what we learn from general revelation is not the plan of salvation, that just there's, there's a God there and I need to know, how do I know him? That's where special revelation is going to come in. But we find out from general revelation his existence his power, something about his glory and his attributes and to put within man along with the conscience that God has given man he's there and I'm man and he's higher than me how do I know him and how do I get in a relationship with him and that's where we have to have special revelation. It's it, it, it condemned. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And Paul says in Romans 1, there is absolutely no excuse, none, for anybody in the world rejecting the knowledge of God based on general revelation alone. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they, again, God has revealed his glory. God's put it in your heart that he's there, and somebody taps that down, has a hard heart, rejects it. Uh, That in and of itself renders them to have a hard heart, and they suppress the truth. And, And God doesn't reveal more to them necessarily. They've rejected even that which they have. Even the testimony that they have, they've rejected. So they're without excuse. And unfortunately, that's where the majority of people have been through the ages. In all cultures of all times. Condemned without excuse. General revelation also shows us it's it's not that people don't have any evidence of a God. They reject what God has given, even in the most basic forms. Unbelief, showing that unbelief is a matter of not just the head, but the heart. 
It doesn't matter how much evidence you show some people that there's a God. They still reject it. They've just closed their minds to it. Years ago, I wish I could remember now which evolutionist it was. I, I, I wish. I read a statement and I thought, wow. <laughs> wow, what, what a... What a condemnation of a, of a person. So he made this statement. He said, we as evolutionists know that creationists have the evidence on their side. Now, not all evolutionists wouldn't agree with this, but this is what this one, that's why I say I wish I could remember who it was. But anyway, he said, we know as evolutionists that creationists have the evidence uh, on their side. But we are unwilling to entertain their evidence because to entertain their evidence would mean that we would have to also embrace the possibility of a creator which we are simply unwilling to do. Wow. Wow. Now, is that not a statement? Is that not a mouthful right there? I know the evidence is there, but I'm not going to accept it because it would mean that I would have to entertain the possibility that there's a God and I'm not even willing to entertain Him as a possibility. If that's not blindness, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. But I, again, I wish I could remember this one uh, because, because he, he admitted, as far as he was concerned anyway, the evidence wasn't on his side. It was on the other side, but he wasn't going to entertain that evidence. Talk about a closed mind. Again, showing it's not just a matter of the head, but unbelief is a matter of the heart. Okay. So what's, I was hoping to get to inspiration tonight, the inspiration of the Bible. We, we won't, uh, we'll have plenty of time. Uh, we'll get into talking about special revelation next week. And in special revelation, again, we'll, we'll cover the doctrine of the Bible. And then we'll look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what's general revelation? What is it? Nature, history, conscience. God making himself known through those avenues. The created order, nature, conscience that he's put within us, and history. General revelation. And again, remember what I've said tonight. It is not enough to save. It is enough to condemn. But for salvation, you need more. You need special revelation. And that's what we'll turn to next week. David? I'm sorry? Oh, Donna. Okay.
in the written word and living word. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, when we... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because each, each person of the Trinity is at work in the, in the plan of redemption, obviously. Yes, good, good point. Yes. Okay, well, we didn't get as far as I wanted, but maybe we got as far as we should. Homework for next week. Go ahead and Google and read the, uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Inerrancy is I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. Inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture simply means what? It's truthful. It's accurate. It's without error in the original autographs. The, the Chicago, if you Google it, it'll come up. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Okay? And they'll, depending on which version you get on the internet, you'll probably see up near the beginning, the whole, if you print the whole thing off, it'll be about 13 pages. But right up front on the first or second page, they'll, they'll give it in sh- shortened form. There'll be like five key statements of it, okay? And then it'll go from there to kind of enlarge upon that and give you the whole thing. But for next week, read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, okay? And you can find that yourself. It's available all over the Internet. Okay, you're dismissed.